scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The ladies this morning just sang a line that said, Your mercy is forever sure. Your mercy is forever sure. How do we know that? How do they know that? What do you think when you hear that? There are times when my emotions and my mind wants to tell me hogwash. And you're the same. If you leave it to tie it to nothing but the phrase itself, you're a fool. It's the most important truth to know is true in all of the world, that His mercy is forever sure to His children. The stakes are humongous. So we just hang that out there? I hope you don't just hang it out there and hope so. I hope when you hear truths like that, you rehearse the gospel in your mind. Why is that true? Because somebody wrote it as a song and it sounds good? No. It is true because it is the gospel. He stores up His goodness to those who take refuge in His Son. That's your only hope of that statement being true. It is the only hope that it's true. It is the only solid place to land. For years in my Christian experience, I tried to take phrases like that and just try to hang on them without anywhere to steady myself. I I hope we're not doing that. I hope when you hear that, the gospel just rings in your ears. It rings to you why it's true. God help us. I think He's teaching us. I, I think He's strengthening our hearts because we're seeing things like that. This morning we're going to continue on in the Gospels. We're with those disciples. Um, Last time we were together, remember the, the context of last time? The disciples were walking along to Capernaum and they were arguing with one another and their argument was about who was the greatest among them. Who did Jesus like the best? among the disciples could have been because of the fact that he took Peter Peter and and a couple of others up on the mountain the mount of transfiguration maybe that's what caused this kind of bickering to go on they wouldn't have needed that to have it happen it's just the nature of our hearts isn't it kind of pecking order kind of stuff that's what was going on in the hearts 
of the disciples. And Jesus, in that setting, if you remember, just called the child up and set the child down among them. And he said, unless you humble yourself as this little child, you won't enter the kingdom. And whoever receives this child receives me. And we broke that down a bit. One of the things we said is Jesus didn't poo-poo greatness. He just said, make sure we use the right measurement for greatness. And the measurement for greatness was, I think, in that text, a humility, a humility of dependence upon him and trusting him like a child depends on a parent. That's the humbling part. Children are not humble necessarily. They're demanding. They're selfish. We teach them some of those things. But in another sense, they are, they are humble in the sense that they just have to depend on their parents. They just have to trust them to take care of them. That's the kind of humbleness that we, we dependently trust God and all that He is for us in Christ. And as we learn to do that, then we begin to receive, we receive the least of these. And He used the illustration again of a child. Whoever receives these children receives me. Um, I think the children represented the least of these. They did in Jewish society. A child was worth nothing in Jewish society. That's how they viewed it. That's how the religious leaders of the day reviewed children. Just, just a waste of time until they're about the age of 12. Just, just, just ignore them. Um, I, think, I think it has application to children. We talked about that last week, but I think it goes farther than that. I think it is the idea that receiving the least of these, there's a sense in which if, if we truly are seeing what we ought to see and our hearts are truly being humbled the way they ought to be humbled by the grace of God that we have a a heart for the least of these those who can't pay us back those who don't have any power to give to us the powerless of the world and certainly children fit into that ranks and because it was the day that it was and we had all of the families here we spent some time talking about the importance of of us as a body of Christ ministering to children. I said to you, if you remember last week, that probably the most godly place on Sunday mornings in this church is right beyond that wall there in the nursery. Because Jesus said, whoever receives these children receives me. And though there's a sense in which as we receive the least of these, as we minister to the least of these, the presence of Christ is there in ways and in in dimensions that it's not otherwise. There's a sense in which more of the fullness of God is among those kinds of things. And so the value for us of, of receiving children, of not ever losing that in our body. I, I really believe, I said to you last week, that I, I think often of why. Why is this church still here? after a hundred years, where it's located. Why? And I said, and I believe with all my heart, it's the grace and mercy of God, but the grace and mercy of God that has, has led us as a people, I think, to receive children. I think some of the reason, some of the reason is because of the text that says, as we read it, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. 
And I don't want us ever to get away from that. I wanted to make this one further point, and then we're going to move on to those same disciples. But this is the point I didn't make last week, and somebody reminded me that I didn't make it. Um, It isn't just doing things for children, I think. This is what I observe in a broad sense, and I'm not thinking of anything, anybody specifically, or any place specifically, but in my experience over the years of pastoring and interacting with others and watching what happens is um, I, I see at times where it, it's, there's a temptation that, um, that, that we as adults want to be ministered to. We want to be be in that kind of ministry. And so and so if we're not careful, we will we will take care of the children, but the the reason for taking care of the children is not the right motive and the right reason. It's it's so that we then can be unhindered, unhindered to get. Um, I see that happening sometimes where where children's ministry is nothing more than than entertainment or a sense of just keeping them out of the way. I don't ever want that to be what we do. We have children's church here. We do have the children with us part of the time. We do have them go to their own services, but not to get them out of the way. If I didn't think, and the day that I think that's not the best way to plant the gospel in their hearts, we won't do it anymore. It's not about getting them out of the way so the adults can do their thing. Never can we let that kind of a mentality come in among us. And the danger of it, the selfishness of our hearts, can take us there if we're not careful. That's why I'm so thrilled that many of you, not everybody has this gift, so everybody, but many of you, more and more, are plugging into children's ministries and, and helping with that, and Sunday school and Wednesday nights. And it takes you away from gathering with adults. To some degree. But I think we must do that. We must. We must make sure that what we do is to plant the gospel. The best way we can plant the gospel. Not to just cause them to not be in the way for us. And I think that's the attitude that the Jewish people had. They're just in the way. They're just a bother. The Jewish leaders of that day. That's why Jesus used that illustration of children. Because they weren't seen as very significant. I hope that's never the case for us. The least of these children, we never see it. We never view it that way. But we go on now to, to other things. And today we, we get deeper into that year of rejection in Jesus' ministry. And uh, it takes another turn, this, this little final year now that Jesus has come into. As he's facing opposition and facing rejection. And an interesting turn happens here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. It says, Now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. There was an intensity. He, He set his face and his course toward Jerusalem. Now remember what he said about Jerusalem not very long ago to his disciples? I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. And on the third day be raised. Part one of that, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. 
He knew exactly what that meant. He knew exactly what laid before him as he went. But he resolutely went. I want to make just a couple of observations of how he went. And then I want to ask three questions about mercy and the disciples. The the two observations are this. The first observation is Jesus went. He he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew there were some difficult things going to face him there. But he continued to go through the hard places to get there. The scripture says here in this case, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Most people didn't do that. Most people, most Jewish people who went to Jerusalem went around Samaria. It took a little longer, but it was still easier to go around. Jesus didn't do it. On his way to difficulty, on his way to Jerusalem, he went through the hard places. I, I don't know about you, but when something hard is facing me, to add more hardship onto that isn't an easy thing to do. You understand what I mean by that? You're facing something. You, you, you know it's going to be difficult. Your tendency is to just kind of draw back and pull back and take it easy for a while so that then you can face the difficult thing. Jesus didn't do that. He just went through Samaria. He knew it wouldn't be easy. He knew that he would face rejection there. But he went anyway. He went to the hard places. I hope that we're a people who who go to the hard places. Wherever those places are. That we don't avoid the hard places so that we can have a break. I just don't think that's what Jesus has called us to do. Whatever those hard places are. I pray we'll be a people that will embrace them, that will go to them. And Jesus went for the sake of the people, not not just to go, not to play the martyr. But Jesus went to the hard places for the sake of the Samaritans, for the sake of the people. That's what motivated him. That's what pushed him through Samaria, the Samaritans themselves. And I don't know, again, where, where it is for you and where you need to, to not go around the hard place. But it's about people, ministering to people. The second thing that I see here is that he responds with mercy to them. Jesus is merciful to the Samaritans. How do I know that? I know that in his response to the two disciples. Look at, look at what he says there. James and John saw it when they saw what? They saw the rejection. And they said, Lord, do you want us to... Tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. Now, where in the world did that statement come from? I mean, they just come out of the blue that they decided all of a sudden we can call fire down on them? I don't think so. I think it comes from the commissioning that Jesus gave to them. There was a sense in which that was a possibility. They knew that they had some unique abilities and some unique giftings that that just might be possible to happen. So it, it wasn't just out of the blue that they came up with that. They, they sensed there was something resting with them and a power resting with them that could have done that. But Jesus' response to them is why I know that Jesus responded to the Samaritans with mercy. And one of the things that I think we need to know is that this is an age of mercy. 
Jesus wasn't necessarily faulting the fact that that judgment is out there. Judgment will come. One day He will establish His kingdom. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And one day there will be great weeping. There will be great sorrow as, as judgment comes. But not now. This is not the age of judgment. This is the age of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day if you hear the voice of God in Christ to respond. And if you hear that voice, He's beckoning you to come and respond. And that's exactly where Jesus... It's not not yet, not now. It isn't the right time. Today is an age of grace. Today is an age of mercy. Jesus went to the hard places. He went to the Samaritans because it is the day of of grace and mercy. And he rebuked the disciples. He rebuked them. Now don't, don't, don't just run over that. That's the second time the scripture that we've walked through now says Jesus rebuked. He rebuked Peter and said, Satan, get behind me. When, when Peter was arguing with him about going to Jerusalem and, and suffering and dying and being raised. He rebuked Peter. I think he stung Peter. He stung Peter very strongly in that rebuke. And here again, he he rebukes the disciples. It uses a strong term when it says he rebuked them. He said, no, that is not what's going to happen. Now, th- these are the questions I want to ask. These are the questions that, that go through my mind. Maybe, maybe I just think this way. But I hope it will be helpful to you. I... The question, if you've been in my Sunday school this morning, you've got a little bit of this. But the question that comes to my mind is, how did they finally get it? That was a ragtag bunch of disciples. He took, took, as I said this morning in my Sunday school, he took 12 men, 12 men, and one of them was never going to get it. But the other 11 were a mess. They were an absolute mess. There was nothing really that tied them together much. They came from all different places. In fact, as we, as we saw this morning, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, they hated each other. I mean, Jesus didn't go out and get a homogeneous group and call them to come. He brought them from all different places and all different segments and they were an absolute mess. And the, and the scripture doesn't hide it. It doesn't hide the mess. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're wanting to call fire down on the Samaritans and burn them up. Get them, God. Get them. I mean, that, they, wouldn't, they didn't see him as God yet, but they wanted Jesus to get them. Get them. Sick them. I mean, that's, that's, they'd rather spit on them than talk to them. I mean, don't sanitize this text. Don't sanitize the disciples. That's who Jesus was working with. That's who he was trying again and again and again to to share with and to mold. So the question is, I answered in my class this morning, how did they get it? Because 
the question is, how do we get it? We're a mess. We're a ragtag bunch. Our hearts are fickle. How do we get it? How did they get it? What did they do? What did Jesus do? They spent three years with Him. They just spent three years with Him. They just kept looking at Him. They just kept observing Him. And as we said this morning, they, they even, it, it even was after the resurrection that they really got it. As Christ was raised, many times the Scripture will say they remembered something He said. And it clicked in their minds. Their eyes got opened to see it. Isn't that the way it is for us? Isn't that what it means when it says, preach the gospel to yourself every day? That's the reason why I start the service the way I start it. Because we're a ragtag bunch. We forget. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded to keep looking back to Christ. You're struggling in your Christian life? The answer? Look to Christ. Look to the Gospel. Remind yourself of the Gospel. That's what shows us Christ. Christ is most clearly seen. We see more of the glory of God in the Gospel, in all that that means, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and all that that accomplished for us. Keep looking at that. That's exactly what the disciples did. They just kept looking at Him. And God transformed their hearts and their lives. That's how they got it. It's not rocket science. No secret, no mystery. They just spent time with Him, looking at Him, observing Him, having questions, getting questions answered. That's the Christian life. That's why the Gospel is not just to get into the Kingdom. The Gospel is what we live by because it's about Christ. That's the answer to question number one. But there are other questions that that come. Second question is, um, they get this idea, this concept of mercy by looking at Christ. But the second thing is, what did they get? In other words, they they got it, and it and it produced mercy in their lives eventually. But what did they get as they looked at Him, as they kept focusing on Him, as they kept looking? To Jesus, what did they ultimately get? I think they got a couple of things. Um, part of this happened in the progress. I mean, at times in the Gospels, remember, remember when Peter, um, Jesus came to Peter and he was fishing, and they didn't catch anything. They'd been all night fishing and didn't catch anything. And Jesus said, "Throw your nets out again." And Peter says, okay, if you say so, I'll throw them out. So they throw them out and they bring in nets that are breaking because there's so many fish in them. And what's Peter's response? Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. So one of the things, as they kept looking at the gospel, they kept looking at Christ, is they began to see their own sinful hearts. Again and again and again, 
they began to see their hearts. I think Peter saw his heart when he got rebuked. He got, he got, he got rebuked hard by Jesus when he said, Get behind me, Satan. I think they got rebuked again when they were arguing over greatness. Again, their heart, they all of a sudden, oh, oof. And then they get it again here when they want to call down fire. Again, they, their heart, they start to see their hearts. They're starting to see their own sin. Now, I don't think, I don't think at this point that they knew, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew he was the promised one. But they didn't know he was God. At this point, as we're walking through the Gospels, I do not think the disciples saw him as God among them. Messiah among them, Redeemer among them, Promised One among them, but they didn't get it, that this was God among them. And so along the way, Jesus keeps showing them their sin, showing them their sin, showing them their sin, showing them their hearts, showing them their fickleness, until they reject Him. And then they really feel their fickleness. Peter, devastated, devastated after he denies the Lord three times, sees his heart again, weeps over the the fickleness of his heart, the sinfulness of his heart, the self-centeredness of his heart. And after the resurrection, remember what Jesus said? He said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter was so broken. What they got What they saw as they kept looking at Christ was their own sin that ultimately led them to brokenness, undoneness in those days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then when the resurrection comes, what do they see? What do they see? I think they see that Jesus is God that this is God among them. And the combination is a powerful launching pad for those disciples to go out and mercifully love the world around them. That's the key. They, they just they got it by looking at Christ. And what they get by looking at Christ is they see their own sin and they see His holiness. They see that He's God. You have to see that. If you don't see the depths of your sin and you don't see the holiness of God, the cross won't mean very much to you. It'll be little. It'll be little. But as you see the holiness of God going this way and your own sin here and realize that the only remedy is the cross, if you put that between it, it's, it, it's bigger and bigger. The more of you see of God, the more you see of your sin, the more you see of the cross cross becomes significant to you. The gospel becomes significant to you. It becomes your boast. becomes your only hope. You see, that's what happened in the lives of the disciples. They got it by looking at it and looking at it. So I say to you this morning, you say, I, I, I'm having trouble getting this. I'm having trouble getting this. I can see other people get it. It seems like everybody else gets it, but I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. What's the remedy? Look at Christ. Keep looking at Christ. 
Keep looking at the gospel. Just keep looking. Keep looking. And it will come. Your eyes will get opened to your own sin and His holiness and you'll begin to see the cross. That's the answer. That's the remedy. It's not, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. It is Christ. It's what changed the disciples. And then finally, the last question is this. How did they get it? By looking to Christ. What did they get? Understanding holiness and our own sin. But then what, what does that translate into? What, what happens when we start to get that? I think it's this whole concept of mercy. We will not be merciful people. We will not be the merciful people we should be. We will be the ones wanting to call down fire until we begin to see the mercy that we have received. You see, that's what changed the disciples. When, when they initially were with Jesus, I think they thought, we're chosen. <laughs> that's kind of neat. God picked us, or not God, but Jesus picked us. Jesus picked us. But the longer they went, the longer they went, they realized there was no reason for him to do that. They began to see mercy. They picked him by mercy. It was a merciful thing that God had showed him what he showed him. It was a merciful thing that God was patient with them. And as they began to understand the mercy they'd received, when they began to see the cross, it causes mercy then to flow out of them. I, I don't think it's too strong a statement to say that, that, that mercy ought to, be, ought to be one of the premier evidences in our life, that we're a person of mercy. If, if, we're, if we're wired to always be critical, and always to be demanding and all of those kinds of things and never extend mercy. Something's wrong. You're not seeing it. You're not seeing what you ought to see. You need to go back and look to Christ. Keep looking at Him. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Scripture says. Mercy. Jesus calls us to mercy of those around us. Let me, let me give you a picture of what that looks like. and We're going to close this morning. It's in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're moving ahead a little bit here. But if you just walk over a, a, a few verses into chapter 10, you get the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the picture. This is what they got. This is what mercy looks like. This is what flows out of looking to Christ, seeing that He's God and seeing our, our sin. Mercy like this. Many of you know the story, so I'm not going to read it, but the story of a a man who was going along the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he fell among robbers, and he was beaten. And the religious people of the day just went on the other side of the road. They just let him lay there. Those who were about perfunctory kind of religious stuff with no mercy left him. 
But then a Samaritan comes along and he doesn't leave him. And the picture I think here is, is what ought to be a part of our lives if we're really looking at Christ, if we're really seeing the gospel and we're really seeing the cross. What happened there was four things. He saw the distress. A merciful person sees the distress. A merciful person is broken by the brokenness of the world. When I talk about the loss of shalom, when I talk about the brokenness of our age and of our world, a merciful person just can't help but see it. To see the distress. You just see it. But you do more than see it. You feel pity for it. I know there's always a danger in equating emotion with spiritual temperatures and that kind of thing, but I just... I just think it's true. This particular Samaritan on the road saw the distress and he felt pity. His heart was moved. If we're really seeing Christ and seeing the cross and seeing how, how huge it is in that gulf between His holiness and our sin and how desperately we need it and how merciful God is to give it to us, our hearts will get moved for others. We can't help but be moved for others if God has done that work in our heart. So he saw the distress, his heart was moved, and he performed relief. He got beyond good intentions and he relieved the suffering of that person. That's what mercy does. The world is full of good intentions, isn't it? It's... it's, it's it's filled with the should have dones, but we need to do it. We need to be moved to relieve the distress. Mercy relieves the distress. And the, the kicker is this. This is the kicker in that whole story. It's not hard to, to in some ways, see the distress of people and to be moved with pity for it and to even relieve it. In some cases. But this was an enemy. To do it for an enemy. To do it for one who's wronged you. To do it for one you have a hatred for. That's what the story is saying. The Samaritan and the Jews. The, the enmity that was between them. The, the ones who should have helped didn't. And the one who, for all rights, in a in a horizontal world with no God who shouldn't have was a Samaritan. But the story says, even for an enemy, mercy. Blessed are the merciful. I think that's what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples here. It's an age of mercy. It's an age of grace. It's an age now of, of extending mercy, not fire. How about us? Are we seeing that? Is that the fruit of our lives? Is it mercy? Not, not perfect. We're all fickle. We all vacillate some. But someplace in there, mercy must, must be a part of those who are the kingdom because they've received mercy. The remedy, if you aren't as merciful as you should, go back to the beginning. 
Question one. Look at Christ. Let's do that. Let's stand and sing. Oh, the God in something rises up in me that wants to bring down fire on somebody or something. It's because I really don't understand your mercy toward me as much as I should. Lord, I pray you'll help us as a people and as a body to be merciful people. In Jesus' name, amen. Dismissed.